we're calling this morning chosen. Chosen is a word that kind of comes out of this first uh, uh, chapter of Ephesians. And uh, in a moment, we'll see the words on the screen. So if you could turn to Ephesians chapter 1, please. And... um, Bible. Ah, Maybe I've been rescued. You can have your own Bible back. The perils of not having a printed Bible these days. (laughs) Thank you. Right. Uh, Ephesians 1, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've read others of the New Testament letters, you'll understand this is something of a standard introduction um, to the letter. And it begs the question of who were the... Where is Ephesus? Who are the people at Ephesus? What's going on in Ephesus? Why, why is Paul writing this letter to them? And some of you who were around last term will remember we looked, at, we looked at what we called some of the apostolic bases in the New Testament, some of the significant city centres through which the apostles reached out to their, their wider regions. The, the biggest one there on the left is Ephesus. That's, that's Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. Um, and... Uh, Paul went there in, if you read Acts 19, you'll find the story of Paul going to Ephesus. He found them. There's a story there, but there's a number of little interesting bits in Acts 19. Paul gets there and discovers they haven't, they haven't found out about the Holy Spirit. Whoever's gone there before and brought the gospel to them hasn't kind of done the job properly. So Paul puts that right and sees them filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered and, and then there's miracles that happen. That's a surprise. You know, Holy Spirit miracles, that's what's supposed to happen. And then because there's miracles, there's riots. <laughs> they're, they're not just doing these miracles in a corner somewhere. They're, the city starts to... There's a, this causes problems because uh, it's, people are just wondering what's going on and it affects people's livelihoods. Because, anyway, you have, you have to read the story. You have to read the story. I, can't, I haven't got time for all that this morning. But it's It's exciting. The gospel comes to Ephesus and stuff happens, stuff changes. And then Acts 19.10 tells us that the whole region came to know the word of the Lord through what happened in Ephesus. There's a, Ephesus was a significant base through which a region was impacted by the gospel. Uh, an amazing impact. When we come to the, later in Ephesians to read then, now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power at work in us, kind of makes a little bit more sense, doesn't it? They've seen the power of God at work in them, spreading the gospel, and also causing quite a lot of trouble. And that's, that's the context. Paul then uh, goes off on his journeys again, and, and, and um, various other incidents. And Paul later on is in, in prison, and he's writing He's writing to this church in Ephesus. He's, he's been in Ephesus, Ephesus for a couple of years, it tells us. He's, he's established the church. He's seen the gospel spread to the region, or at least start to spread to the region. And so he writes to them. So he's not writing to them as strangers, people he's never met. He's writing to them as family that he's lived with for two years, as family that he's seen stuff happen, and seen exciting stuff happen, and, and seen some problems as well. And... There's some evidence that this, this, this letter to the Ephesians was a circular letter. It wasn't just sent to one church in Ephesus. But as, as, as it seems to me obvious from the fact that Ephesus impacted a region and planted churches, 
this letters get shared around. Other people read this letter. So it's one of the more general letters um, that we read. And you can read more about all that kind of stuff in any, every good study Bible. If you're interested in the background to um, Ephesians, read, read more about that. One of the things I, I noticed as preparing this time is reading... I've been working in my own Bible reading, working through 1, 1 and 2 Timothy. And Timothy was sent by Paul to Ephesus to... Paul had to move on, and Timothy ended up going to sort a few things out. And Paul says to Timothy, uh, I sent you there to sort out some things. People were getting distracted by ideas and meaningless talk that provoked, promoted controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work. People were getting caught up with all kinds of interesting ideas, all speculations and genealogies and sort of, you know, not particularly major things, and getting distracted from God's work. And Paul says to Timothy, I sent you there to get them focused again on the main thing. And I think that's what Ephesians does for us. It gives us a big picture, a really big picture of God's purposes in the world. And we'll, we'll come and see that. So that's just a little bit about who the letter was written to. Um, why are we looking at Ephesians now? One answer to that is we have a habit of working through different parts of the Bible. It's good for us to do that. It's good for us to look at different parts of the Bible because it forces us to look at some issues that might be a little bit awkward or we don't really want to look at, ideally. There's a couple of those later in Ephesians, which we'll come to in due course. That's one answer, that it's good for us to look at different books of the Bible. There's another answer, which is, uh, and we talked about a little bit about this last term, God is calling us to be the, a kind of Ephesians-like church in, a ch- in, in as much as we're a church that impacts our region and touches our region. And... OCC is called, we're called to be a community, a strong community. We're not, we are, in our day, living in an individualistic culture. And yet the church is called to be different, to be a community, to be a family. Um, and this individualistic culture is kind of the water we swim in in our, in, our, in our modern culture. But God is calling us to be different as a community. We're called to be a community. Ephesians addresses that issue of being a community. We're called to purpose. We're called, we live at a time, too, when church can be a bit of a consumerist thing for some people, a place where you come and have your needs met, rather than a community that together goes out and does God's work in the world. We're called to be a community of purpose, OCC, and Ephesians speaks to that issue, too. We're called to be multi-ethnic. You've heard us speak about this a fair bit over the last year or two. God is stirring something again amongst us. Ephesians speaks to that issue. Oxford is now the third most ethnically diverse city in the south, in, in, in England. Um, London, Slough, Oxford. <laughs> you know, that surprised me when I found that stat. We're called to respond to that. God, Ephesians speaks to that issue. We're called to impact our city and beyond as I just said, like Ephesians, we're called to be a base, a resource church, a church that has a vision for bigger and beyond our immediate parish, as it were. Uh, Ephesians speaks to that issue. And as we spread and do more and more different things and get involved in God's work in different places, different parts of the city, different workplaces, different communities, it matters that we remain one. God is calling us to unity. Ephesians speaks to that issue. And as Steve said to us last week, we're called to spiritual battle. If you, didn't, if you weren't around last week and didn't hear Steve's talk, I would encourage you to listen, listen to that online. It kind of set the tone for the season we're in at the moment as a church, which is a season of praying into what God is doing. 
Um, Ephesians deals with the spiritual battle. So for all those very good reasons, we're going to be looking at Ephesians uh, this term. The last thing I want to say before we get into the text itself is the big picture matters. Uh, as we approach the Bible, we can often take verses out of context, and so it matters that we get a big view. And so we're going to read the whole of Ephesians this morning to make sure we get that. No, no, seriously. No, we, won't, we won't read the whole of Ephesians, but we should read the whole of Ephesians first, because that's before we dive into a chapter or a verse in a chapter, we should read the whole thing. We should read the whole thing two or three times, and then we see the sweep of the, of the story, of the narrative, of what, what, the, what Paul is saying. But we're, the, the, my favorite example of a verse taken out of context is this one. The favorite of many Christian memes on the internet, isn't it? I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Anyone know the context that that was written into? Jeremiah, Hmm? Jeremiah, yeah. Exile. This is perhaps a more appropriate meme image than some sort of happy kitten or something. As we, (laughs) The people were being persecuted and driven out of their homes by God himself as judgment for what they'd been doing. They were being punished. And God's promise was, look, after 70 years, you'll be restored. I have plans for you. That puts you in a slightly different context, doesn't it? <laughs> um, and this is my point about um, taking things out of context. So let's look at Ephesians. And we're not going to read the whole thing. Fear not. We haven't quite got time for that. Um, let me just take a few sound bites from, from the different chapters and work through, just, just read these out to you. First of all, one, we're going to look at some of these in more detail this morning. God's plan is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Right at the beginning of the letter, we've got this enormous, grand, cosmic plan. It's not God's plan is to save one or two people. It's God's plan is to bring unity to all things. That's a big picture, if ever I knew one. God's plan is that that we would know the hope to which he's called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance. We're supposed to know that we're God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Chapter 2 goes on. God's purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, one unified body. Chapter 2 goes on, and we're, we're supposed to be built together, People, we're supposed to be built together as community to be a dwelling in which God lives. We're not just a club of some kind of sort or people that happen to come together on a Sunday. We're supposed to be a community, a temple in which God lives because he's built us together. Chapter 3, God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. That's another grand statement, isn't it? And we're going to unpack all of these in the coming weeks. Therefore... Now he gets practical. Chapters 1 to 3 are really big picture, painting a a wonderful tapestry of God's purposes. And then chapter 4 starts to get a bit more practical. I urge you, therefore, to live a life worthy of the calling. Well, the calling is this this grand purpose. It's to be part of God's great purposes. Chapter 4 goes on and talks about the body again. There's a strong thing in Ephesians about the church, the community, the body of Christ. And we're going to see that time and time again as we go through this. From him, Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is another picture. It's rather 
Um, rather like the building where we're supposed to be built together, this is a body now, and we're, we're jointed together by ligaments, and we're supposed to, as each of us plays our part, the body is built up. So then, this is, and it goes into much more practical stuff then, this is how we live, this is how we do community because of this great purpose. So this is, that's the grand sweep of Ephesians. You might want to, I've, I've tried to summarise this, and I've come up with one, one or two statements. God has a grand plan, Ephesians 1 to 3. We are blessed by God. You're going to see, as we go into Ephesians 1 in a moment, you're going to see we're blessed by God, and we're called to be part of his purposes, his purposes in the church. Come and see how you can play your part. There's a part for every one of us to play in this uh, great purpose. Looking at what other people have said about Ephesians... Uh, one, one commentator describes it like this. The Ephesians are the crown jewels of Paul's writing, gathering up the main themes of his teaching into a unified presentation. It's not one of the longest letters, but it's a, it's a letter that sums up a whole bunch of things. It's a very rich letter. Paul's magnum opus. The quintessence... These are nice big words, aren't they? Quintessence of Paul's theology. I just, I, there's something about Ephesians that brings together in a relatively short book... Uh, God's great purposes. That's why we called it God's grand, great purposes, God's great plan for, for his world. Now we're going to look at the chunk, so Ephesians 1. Um, as I've dived into Ephesians 1 this week, um, uh, this image comes to mind. Has anyone done one of these? Where's Wally? The point about these where's Wally pictures, yeah, there's lots of, probably lots of, where's Wally is... Every time you look at it, you see something different, don't you? You think, oh, that's going on there. Well, that's interesting. Or, well, that's a bit cheeky. Or, there's all kinds of stuff that goes on in, in Where's Wally. And as you look at Ephesians, as we're going to look at Ephesians 1 now, you're going to see that there is a huge amount in there. We could spend, and people have spent, months working through Ephesians 1 in preaching or in commentaries. There's a huge amount of richness in there. Uh, and... Uh, Yeah, come back to that in a moment. Um, the, the, the first part is something of a poem or a hymn, people think. Uh, the first part, apparently the first half of Ephesians 1 is one single sentence in Greek, which is 200 words. So, I mean, that gives you an idea of grappling with it. It's, there's a lot going on. Um, different people have different ideas about how, you, how to break it up. Some, some of, I love this little quote. One commentator said, The pedants regard Paul as having bad style. He is ornate. His language is ornate. He multiplies adjectives. He repeats himself. He becomes carried away and forgets what he's trying to say, leaving things unfinished. There's something of the character of that in Paul's writing. I, I, I imagine Paul responding to that criticism and saying, why say something only once when you can amplify it and enrich it by saying it in several different ways? I find myself praying sometimes in prayer meetings or something, and I find myself saying the same thing several different ways, and somehow it just helps me express. I'm struggling to find words to express the wonder of God. And so by saying it in several different ways, it, it brings different aspects of that out. I think Paul's a bit like that. And so we need to read Ephesians 1 as not some kind of technical statement, some analytical statement of various things, but it's an, it's an overflowing expression of praise. It's, it's, it's a hymn, it's a song. It's, it's not a passage that leads us to action necessarily. It's a passage that leads us to worship. 
and thanksgiving. We, we read Ephesians 1 and we go, oh my goodness, that is such a wonderful picture of God's plans for his people. And so, as, I, as we dig into the text in these next few minutes, uh, I'm hope, I, I'm, this will just whet your appetite, I hope, to go deeper yourself. Because you, you will come to chapter 1 and see more things than I have time to unpack this morning. I've divided it into three chunks. Um, the first piece, we're going to look at, um, this is verse 3. You might want to look this up in your Bibles. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, some of you might know him as a, used to be the um, pastor at Westminster Chapel in London, wrote a monster commentary on, on Ephesians, said, um, this is one of those glorious, staggering statements which are found in such profusion in the writings of Paul which states the whole gospel in a phrase or a verse. This is one of his most glorious statements. Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying this is a statement of the whole gospel. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Um, And this sort of sums up, if you like, the whole, certainly the whole of chapter 1, but maybe more. This is what God wants us to understand. This is what Paul wants us to understand about God as we read Ephesians, that God has blessed us with every possible blessing. And he's going to go on and list all the blessings. Um, We're going to just look at those three words. Blessing. Blessing just means, uh, I'll try to put this as simply as possible, God does good stuff for us. (laughs) When we're blessed, good stuff happens, isn't it? Good stuff is happening. God blesses us. God causes good stuff. And we're going to look at a number of blessings in just a moment. So if that's the first thing, we're blessed to be in Christ. We are in Christ. Um, how many of you were around, um, I think Al spoke on this last term, actually possibly from this very passage. Yes, nodding. Um, how many of you around? One? One person remembers being around. <laughs> it's worth preparing, Al, it really is. Yeah. <laughs> um, we are in Christ. This, this phrase, in Christ, comes up seven times in this in this first part of Ephesians and Paul uses the term 160 odd times it's a it's a big thing for Paul us being in Christ Um, and in a sister letter the letter to Colossians Paul also refers to us having Christ in us so it kind of works both ways it's why why we pick this picture of a bucket somehow we're in Christ and he's in us we're thoroughly immersed in Christ Um, and what does that mean for us? How do we become in Christ? This is explained in chapter 13, uh, sorry, verse 13 in chapter 1. If you look in verse 13, it says, very simply, you were included in Christ when you believed. So Christians, if you, Christians here today, if you're in Christ, if you've received Jesus, if you've uh, accepted him as king of your life, you're in Christ. There's no doubt about that. You are in Christ. You are and when God looks at you, he looks at you in Christ. He looks at you hidden in Christ. Um, in Christ. And in the heavenly realms is the other phrase in, in this verse 3. Um, this is, again, another one of the phrases that comes up repeatedly in these first few chapters of Paul. In chapter 1, again, verse 20, Paul says, 
Christ is seated in heavenly places, and he goes on into chapter 2, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Christ, the resurrected Christ, is now in heavenly places with God, and somehow in Christ, in the Spirit, we also have been raised with Christ. Uh, we're Again, Colossians explains this, and he says, since then you have been raised with Christ. There's no question about that. We have been raised with Christ. Since then, set your heart on things above. The, the fact that we're, we're raised with Christ is supposed to make us live differently. We're supposed to, I was trying to think of an example of this, and I thought of um, this example of a couple of friends of mine. Um, does anyone recognize these guys? No? Blank, blank looks. So um, on the left, we have... Well, now Baroness Philippa Stroud, who was elevated to the uh, House of Lords a few years ago, and her husband, David. um, David leads a church in London, has done a few things with the Sort Light Network that we're part of, so got got to know him a little bit through that. They started um, back at the interest, some of the students, because I know there's a bit of connection. They started actually working with Jackie Pullinger in Hong Kong um, some time ago and learnt to work with drug addicts there. They then came back to the UK and, and pioneered work with the homeless in the church in Bedford, a New Frontiers church in Bedford. And long story short, Philippa was eventually made a peer. Um, she was elevated to the House of Lords. So that sounds very good. For her work on advising the then government on social policy. And I was talking with David about this once. I said, so what's it like being the, the husband of, you know, a, a lord? No, a lord, a Lady, what's it? What's it like up here? And you know, it wasn't him that did anything; it was her, and she got promoted and exalted and all the rest of it. And 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 so, what's it like? You know, he he has the right to use a different title now. Um, I forget which one exactly. In in formal public life, people need to address him differently. He has new rights. They're nothing to do with him or his achievements. But it did demand that he behaved differently. In certain circles, he has to behave differently. Um, and I, just, I was thinking during the week, this is a little bit like us and Christ. Just a little bit. It's not a great example. But it's a little bit like something's happened to Christ. He's been raised in heavenly places. He's seated alongside the Father. He is now ruling the universe. We're connected to Christ. Um, we're, we're we're in Christ, and therefore our behaviour changes because of Christ's change. This chapter then calls us up to see our calling as chosen children. Uh, we can often focus in the church on our need for salvation and our sin and the fact that we're, we need to be put right before God. And that's all, that's all true, but this chapter focuses on our status, on our being in Christ, on the calling we have um, You might want to say about this chapter, there should be no Christian low self-esteem after reading this. We should realise our true identity and calling as God's chosen people. That's what this chapter, that's what Paul's trying to do for the church in Ephesians. He's trying to get their heads out of these silly arguments they're having and say, there's a bigger picture. Play your part in God's great cosmic purposes. As we sung earlier, if God is for us, who can be against us? So just a few comments there on, on verse 3. Let's move on to um, verses 4 to 14. Uh, we're just going to read this together. So read it in your version, or I'm going to read it off the screen. But For he chose us 
the, the colored words we're going to look at in a bit more detail in a moment. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love. You could just stop and unpack every single one of these, couldn't you? It's just, there's so much in it. He chose us. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good purpose, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. Remember, the, I mean, it's a wonderful um, passage, and I love reading it, and if I'm feeling a bit down, and a bit not sure whether God loves me anymore, which is a stupid thing to do, but you, I, I come to this passage and go, ah, oh, yes, it kind of refreshes me, restores my soul. Um, and remember, this was um, this very long sentence in Greek, so the yeah, the, the translators have tried to, their best to break it up into something which we can make sense of. I've highlighted eight blessings. This is all about the blessings we have in Christ. I've highlighted eight. There's probably a lot more we could highlight, but I've just picked eight. Um, but remember, this is a kind of lengthy, tripping over itself sort of monologue from Paul, and, and there's just lots in there. Firstly, we're, we're blessed. No, sorry, we're, that's we're, firstly, we're chosen by God. We're chosen to be holy, is what it says in the text. Holy doesn't mean um, sort of super spiritual. Holy just means set apart for God. It means has got a sense of being blameless, but set apart for God, designated for God, chosen. Um, the classic example is, you know, the football team at school when you're chosen or not. I was never chosen, so I was not chosen. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I managed to, it's a complete tangent, I managed to break my wrists, both wrists, on separate occasions over a period of two years. So I missed the bit at school when they explained all the rules of football and rugby. So I was utterly useless at both of them. Um, and uh, yeah, it was never, I was always last to be chosen at school, so you can pray for me later. But, but, but God chooses us. God is not like, God is not like a, uh, someone who doesn't choose someone in the football team. God is not like the you know, the boyfriend who's been rejected by his girlfriend. God, you know, God, is, God is for us. God chooses us. We're chosen. We're chosen by God. We're not some kind of accident. We're chosen by God. Secondly, we're adopted for his family. Adoption, we sometimes read this stuff about being adopted and think of it in a kind of technical, transactional kind of way. Oh, I'm a Christian, therefore I'm adopted. It's kind of, it's like a, I've got a certificate or something and I'm in, I'm in God's family. And that's true, absolutely true. But there's more to it than that. Adoption is a 
relational metaphor. It says something about emotion, doesn't it? And feeling and, and love. A um, little, little video clip for you here. That captures the emotion of adoption. Um, some of us may have seen that doing the rounds of the internet, but it captures the emotion of adoption. This little girl unwraps the thing. Oh, I'm adopted, wow! We should, be have, we should have that kind of response with God. Not just, oh, thank you, God, I'm adopted, tick. <laughs> it's like, God, I am so overwhelmingly thankful that you've adopted me into your family. You haven't just sort of, in a transactional way, maybe part of some kind of thing, but you've adopted me into family. Thirdly, we're predestined, um, which relates to being chosen, really. Um, This is a word that's obviously created quite a lot of challenge in the church over the years, and I'm not going to do it justice in in 30 seconds. But remember, the tone here is praise, not analysis. The tone of this whole passage is overflowing praise for God and what he's done for us. And we find that when we become Christians, we realize that it was all God's plan in the first place. That is true. (laughs) One commentator, Carl Barth, who was a conservative commentator early in the 20th century, he complains about this passage. He says, he's complaining, he says, Paul does not engage in philosophical consideration about the implication of this point. (laughs) He's absolutely right. The passage doesn't answer the question that we might want to answer. What does all this mean and how does predestination work and what about people that don't choose God and how does all that work and that? The passage doesn't answer all that stuff. The passage is an overflowing poem of praise and says, God, I am so grateful that I am predestined. I'm part of your family. Um, and as I, going back to what Al, Al commented in the autumn on, I'm not sure it was this passage, another passage, Al said, there's two things it can't mean. It can't mean that God has no say in our becoming Christians, and it can't mean that we have no say. So those are two extremes that we rule out. It can't possibly... The scriptures as a whole rule out those two options. We have a say, God, but it, also, it, 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 it can't mean that God has no say and we have no say. And two, we can know two things, that we can pray that people can come to God and we can appeal to them to choose God. However we reconcile the, the tension between man's choice and God's predestination, we, we are called to be a people that are on mission, a people that are reaching out to people and doing our utmost to uh, see them coming into God's family. So predestined. We're grateful that we're predestined. We're grateful that we're redeemed. We're blessed to be redeemed. I was watching a, reading a news story this morning. I don't know if any, any of you have been keep up with American news. There's a, there was a girl that was... Um, her parents were um, murdered about three months ago, and she was, just, she was taken by the, um, the murderer. And she's been missing, abducted, missing for three months. Um, I can't remember her name now, but Jamie, I think Jamie something. She reappeared yesterday, or maybe the day before. Um, she has been set free from her captor. Not quite sure what the story is yet. And reading this, these news stories, the, the, the delight and emotion of her relatives, that she has been set free. She's been returned to them. She's been restored to them. She's no longer missing in action. Um, great joy, obviously. I think, again, that's a little, mo- little window into how we're supposed to feel about God's redemption in our lives. It's supposed to bring us to great joy. God has set us free. God has set us free. The fifth blessing is grace is lavished upon us. I love that word, lavished. It kind of speaks of, I always think of food, a lavish, lavish banquet or something. You know, 
a lavish amount, an extravagant amount. It's over the top, overflowing. God's grace isn't just, again, it's not just a box-ticking thing where God gives us a bit of grace. God's grace just overflows in a lavish, outpoured, extravagant, over-the-top kind of way. Sixthly, God reveals his purposes to us. Um, as I said earlier, I'm just whetting your appetite. All of these points we could go into, but, and I'm just trying to give you a flavor of the passage. God reveals his purposes. He's not just rescued us from sin and redeemed us and adopted us into his family and then said, oh, just sit there and be quiet. That's not the kind of family God's called it. He reveals his purposes. It's like a family business. God says, you're in my family now. I love you for just who you are. You don't have to do anything, but I'd love you for you to be part of my purposes. And he reveals his purposes to us. His purpose, and this, as we go on into uh, even this chapter, but certainly in, into Ephesians, we're going to see his purposes. God reveals his purposes. We're called to be co-workers with God, not just spectators. Co-workers. Seventhly, we're included in Christ. This takes us back to this idea of being in Christ. We're included. We're not excluded. We're not left to the last in the line of football team. We're included. We're chosen. We're not left out. And eighthly, we have a guaranteed inheritance. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment, so I won't say much now. But there's eight. When it, there's eight. There's probably 25 blessings you could you could pull out of that passage in the first part of Ephesians 1. It's a rich passage of the blessings. If you're feeling down, if you're feeling you're not sure about your relationship with God, read that passage. Let it wash over you. Let it wash over you. It's a rich passage that leads us to praise. And this is Paul's problem, if you like, and why when we get to this passage, it's, there's so much going on. And you may already be feeling like we've had too much to eat this morning and you just want to stop and digest it. But there's more. There's more in this passage. Um, we're going to move to the second chunk. Uh, and we're, this is the last bit of the, bit of the chapter 1, verse 8 to 22. I've, I've kind of gone back a little bit because there's an overlappingness that's going on in, in chapter 1. And it's helpful to start just a little bit further back. And we're asking here, what's God's purpose? This, the second part of Ephesians starts to explore a little bit more the purpose. The first part's more about the blessings, and the second part is more about the purpose. So, uh, verse 8. With all wisdom and understanding, God made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good purpose, which he purposed in Christ, to put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth, under Christ. I'm just going to pause there. Martin Lloyd-Jones again says, In this verse, we are transported above the matter of our personal salvation. Personal salvation matters big time. But it, uh, we're transported above that, into the realm of ultimate things. God's grand, comprehensive, final, ultimate purpose. God gives us no greater privilege than to be allowed to look into this. We just said a minute ago, God reveals to us. This is part of what God reveals to us. His ultimate intention. People talk today about, you know, the, the phrase that's become trendy is joining God in the restoration of all things as a, as a sort of statement of our purpose in the world, social justice and salvation and, and cultural mandate, all those sort of things. Some of you remember Steve talking about this last year. He was around when Steve drew these various pictures. Again, some of you 
It's more worth you preparing than L by the looks of it. Yeah. <laughs> so God's original intention, God, at the, 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 the person is at the middle, and his, the person's relationship with God, the person's relationship with other people, the person's relationship with the world was intended to be in perfect harmony. Sin came and fractured the relationship with God, the individual's relationship with God, and that had a significant impact on their relationship with others and the world. And now, in this era, as part of the church, we we have a mandate to evangelism, which is is to see people restored to God, their relationship with God. We have a mandate for social action, which is to see people restored in their relationship with each other, and a mandate for cultural renewal, to see the world, man and the world, relating properly again more could be said on all that but Ephesians goes on to show us how that that comes to work and it sums it up I mean this these diagrams are all very good but Ephesians sums it up beautifully and just says all things in unity under Christ it's a much simpler statement is it all things in unity under Christ and Ephesians goes on to show us how this works Ephesians goes on to this sort of pattern it says Everyone is reunited with God. Everyone is set free. We've just seen, we've seen glimpses of that in, a, in chapter 1. Together we're united as family, as church. And if chapters 2 and 3 go on to do that more, so we'll see more about that. And then, and, but Ephesians also shows us these great cosmic purposes for the world. That is God's great plan. We have a part to play, church. God's ultimate intention is that all things are united in Christ. And we have a part to play. And we're going to see more about that as we go through Ephesians. Uh, next bit. So verse 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. A deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. We'll come back to that in a moment. Keep reading. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. There's this thing again about God wants us to understand his purposes. He wants to, through the Holy Spirit, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparable great power for, the, for us who believe. There's a little flow here about the Holy Spirit and his, his role. His, his, the Holy Spirit is seen as a bit of a, an inheritance, a down payment of our inheritance. It's a bit like, um, a few little examples, it's a bit like you've seen the trailer of a film and you're excited to see the film when it's released. There's a kind of down payment. There's an early, there's an early peak. You've seen something and it's given you an appetite for more. Or it's a bit like you've exchanged contracts for a house and paid the deposit. So you've paid, you, the down payment has been made. You can't back out. The other people can't back out. Um, but you haven't got it yet. You're waiting for the house. You're waiting to move into the house. We've got some friends who uh, exchanged just before Christmas. They've been waiting for several weeks to actually complete the transaction frustratingly. But, but 
there's an expectation. Oh, it's a bit like, another example, you've exchanged rings at engagement. A, mar- a couple are engaged to be married. They've exchanged rings. There's, there's already a relationship. There's a commitment. But somehow there's a heightened expectation of this. Those are all just little pictures of the Holy Spirit as a down payment. There's a lot more to come. The Holy Spirit is with us now. Something has happened. We see the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our community. We see, as Steve was giving some great testimonies earlier of the Holy Spirit at work in the wider community. We see all of that. Uh, but there's more. Eternity is going to be a much richer place. We, we've got a little foretaste just now. And uh, it's in, we have this inheritance. I could say a little bit more about inheritance, but I'm going to skip that for the sake of time. Um, just to finish off this uh, chapter then, that power, what was that power? That power is his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who filled everything in every way. Every time I read that, the bit in, I just go, really? Really? The church is his body. The church is the fullness of Christ who fills everything in. That's an amazing, shocking statement, isn't it? We feel a bit messed up and broken and fragile and like life's a bit hard. God sees us as the fullness of him, the f- his fullness in the world. Just in case you think that's a New Testament idea, Psalm 8, which is hinted at in this passage, Psalm 8 says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. This is man, so you crowned him with glory and honor. You gave him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. There's a, there's a thread all the way through Scripture that as mankind, we're chosen to be God's co-workers. We are in some way the fullness of him on earth. It's amazing, isn't it? N.T. Wright says on this passage, King Jesus has, as his hands and feet, his agents within the present world, the church. We are his hands and feet. We are his agents in the world. The church is his body the fullness of the one who fills all all in all. And this is the interest of it. If only the church would realize this and act accordingly. And if you take nothing else away from this morning, I'd love you to take that sense away of what a wonderful calling we have. And church, let's act accordingly. Let's act as as those in Christ and raised to heavenly places. So just to try and summarize... um, these are just some of the words that we've looked at. I could, we could fill this screen with words, uh, but these are some of the words we've looked at. This is not a chapter that leads us to action. This is a chapter that leads us to devotion, to praise, to thanksgiving, to an overflow. Uh, have a look at that list of words. Which of those words really struck you this morning? Which of those words landed for you? Um, which of those words... Does God want you to dig into more? Picture here of a dog with a bone. A dog chews on 
the bone. The dog chews on... It looks like an old bit of stick, doesn't it? The dog chews on it to get every bit of flavour out of it. Every, it just keeps going back to the, <coughs> to the stick. I want to encourage us to chew on these words. To chew on the word of God. To chew. And let the word of God do as good. Some people call this meditation. I like to think the, the picture of dog chewing is much more... It's just a much richer kind of picture. Let's chew on these words. Let's get the most out of them. Let's understand the rich thing God has done for us. Which of those words stands out for you? I'm just going to encourage us to stand now if you're able. And we're going to start thanking God. Whichever of those words has resonated most for you. What do you just start to put on your lips praise and thankfulness to God. Maybe it's that he's adopted you. Maybe that video struck a chord for you. Maybe it's that God's grace is lavished. God is not a stingy God. Whichever one it is, let's just start to pray out and then Jenna and the band are going to lead us in a song of worship. Thank you, God. Let's just all pray out together. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your adoption. Thank you that you call us to be part of your family. Thank you that you call us to be part of your purposes. Thank you, Jesus.